Good morning. Welcome to Fellowship of Huntsville on this beautiful sunny day. So this is the week you got to get out, all right? You're not allowed to stay in the house this week. Can't watch any TV. You have to go outside and enjoy. We live in a great part of the state. We've got hiking trails everywhere. You need to be, you should see each other on one of the hiking trails this week. This is going to be great. So there's not many times of the year, well, I should say there are other times of the year that I am not praising blue sky and sun in the sky, like July. Uh, sorry, Troy. Anyway, uh, but this week is the great, this, I, just walking from the college building to here, I started, man, this is getting warm outside. This is wonderful. Anyway, enjoy this week. Enjoy it with family. Just praise the Lord for his great creation because this is when we start to see the splendor of it. Regardless of the chaos in your life, just go out and enjoy some sun and some blue skies because you're going to get plenty of it. Please do not get tired of it, at least not this week. Um, Let's open up to Scripture. John chapter 1, I'm going to read 14 through 18. CF's going to be concentrating on verse 18 this morning, but we're going to start in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God At any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and its truth, how you just expound upon who you are and who your Son is. Lord, how you have come to this earth or you came to this earth in the flesh, dwelt among us, and Lord, your glory was greater than anything else ever known by mankind ever known by this universe. Lord, I pray for CF this morning. I pray for truth to be spoken from you through him, that your spirit will speak to us into our hearts and our minds. And we just say this in your name. Amen. We're now going to dismiss the kids. They're going to go out through to this hallway on this side over here where they're going to have church and stuff to do while we're in here. And when we're done, you can pick them up in the same area. Thank you. Oh, ages three through fourth grade. Did I say that? Anyway, that's the age group. Good morning, everybody. You have your Bibles, open them to the passage that he read, John chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we are doing a study through the Gospel of John. And uh, we are on this passage 14 through 18, which is a part of a larger portion, which is 1 through 18 which is referred to as the prologue to the Gospel of John. It's kind of like an introduction to the book. And then you start getting into the actual meat of the book, beginning in verse 19, you start seeing the witness of his work, his activity on earth, um, all that. But we spent three weeks on this passage, this being the third week, 14 through 18. We'll conclude it today. So today is the deity of Christ full of grace and truth. And that's really speaks to the whole gospel of John. He's presenting Christ as God, which refers to deity. 
And this passage here, focusing on his grace and truth, where the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and Moses gave us the law, but grace and truth come through the person of Christ. He's beginning that internal motif that's in the book of John, that is that Jesus is a greater than Moses. And he's going to be presenting him as that. And we'll see that this morning also. So for this morning, we're going to focus on verse 18 and see what that means to tie this whole section together. So if you will, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll begin. Father God, we come before your throne of grace and we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your love, for your kindness that we see every day from you. Thank you for the rain that you gave us. Thank you, Lord, today for the sunshine that you give us. We're grateful for every blessing in life. Thank you for life itself. Help us, Father, as we study today to understand your truth and help me to rightly divide your word of truth and present it clearly and accurately in such a manner that your people can receive it and put it to use in our life to better live and serve you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. He begins this little section, this little verse here. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. That statement, no one has seen God at any time, is an emphatic statement. It's a, it's a statement was referred to as a statement of surety, of certainty, okay, of absolute nature. No man has seen God at any time. There are several reasons why you can't see God, and we're going to look at them as we go through here. One of those reasons being that God is invisible. He's speaking of the Father. God the Father is invisible. Second one, that He dwells in a, in a light that is unapproachable by man, meaning that man cannot see God. Uh, and so we'll see passages that relate to that as we go through here and study. But uh, there's other passages in the, in the book of John even that speaks of the fact that, that no one has uh, seen, seen God at any time. Look with me, if you would, at John chapter 5. And if you look at John chapter 5, and we'll look at verse, um, look at verse 37. He says, And the Father, John 5, 37, And the Father Himself, who sent me, has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. And there's an allusion to that right there, because God the Father has no form. He is spirit, okay? Uh, if you turn back one chapter and look at verse 20, uh, look at, uh, ah, not verse 24. Anyway, go to John chapter 6 and look at verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. The only person that's seen the Father is the Son. All right? And then you look at John 15 and 24, and we see another reference to it. John 15 and 24. He says, If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and also have hated me and my Father. And what he's saying there is, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But no man has seen God himself. No man has seen God with his own eyes and lived. 
And this is spoken of a lot in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has a lot more to say about it. Uh, so if you would like to turn in the Old Testament, turn to the book of Exodus, the 33rd chapter. We're going to look at some references over there. John, I mean, Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus 33, we're going to begin in verse 18. Exodus 33, 18. This is Moses speaking to God. And, and he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. All right. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. And so it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face shall not be seen. Now, in reality, if you want to know the truth, he can't see his back either because God does not have a back. God the Father does not have a back. He is spirit. And so you cannot see him. And so when he says you will see my back, what he is essence is saying, you're going to see my glory. You're going to see that I've come by. And that's what Moses sees. Moses sees the light uh, that goes by there but he doesn't actually see God. He can't, he can't. it's impossible for him to see God. Uh, chapter 32, he spoke of it also. Chapter 32, verse 30, it says, then it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to people, you have sinned a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have sinned a great sin, have made for themselves a God of gold. And then he's going to talk about their forgiveness and, and, so, and so forth and so on. But the significance there is Moses said, I'm going to go up and see the Lord. All right. He makes a reference to that. Does he see him? No, because he can't see him. But he goes into the presence of God. He goes right into his presence. You see another reference in the book of Judges you'll turn over to the book of Judges and look in the uh, 13th uh, chapter of the book of Judges. We'll see a reference there where people claim to have seen God. And this is Manoah and his wife. I'm going to pick up uh, verse 6. So the woman, I'm in Judges 13, 6. It says, so the woman came and told her husband, saying, a man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of, the, of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord 
and said, O oh my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not there. And we're going to read some more, but I just want to touch on that angel of God. The angel of God is a, is a physical, visible angel that's there. The angel of the Lord, as expressed in scripture here, is what we refer to as a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. It is where Christ comes and makes an appearance. For, for example, when Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, that was wrestling with Jesus. When Abraham had the three visitors come, two of them were angels, one of them was the angel of the Lord, it was none other than Christ. So when Moses was before the burning bush and he talked to God at the burning bush, that was the presence of Jesus Christ. That is called a Christophany. When God passes in front of him in the rock and, and he gets a glimpse of his glory, that is referred to as a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God or the presence of God that people could see. Most of the time when people claim to have seen God in the Bible, what they saw was a vision. And we're going to look at some of those in a little bit to where you understand there's not a contradiction or something in there. But we see that uh, this is a... a Christophany is what it is right here. It's, uh, I don't even know what verse I finish reading. Verse 10, let's go to verse 10. I'm in Judges 13 still. It says, Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, uh, Look, the man has just now appeared to me, the one who came to me the other day. So Manoah arose and followed his wife and when he came to the man, he said to him, are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now let your words come to me or come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life in his work? And so the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I've said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And this is where the angel of the Lord is revealing to Manoah and his wife that Samson is going to be born, okay? And uh, so, um, and, and Manoah said, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. Uh, verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. Just another note in passing. Verse 15 there. You'll notice it says angel of the Lord and the word Lord is all capital letters. In that, 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 that is the word Yahweh. That is the name of God is, is what it is. So the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is, is the person of Christ. It's a Christophany. Uh, verse 16, And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? 
that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord, uh, and the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering. He dropped that request pretty quick right there. He, and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. As the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, it appeared that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die because we have seen God. So see, from his perspective, he saw God from the perspective of scripture. No, you didn't. You saw the angel of the Lord. You saw a Christophany. You saw a theophany. You saw an appearance of God, but you did not look at God. Because if you did, you would be dead. That's all there is to it, okay? Why can't God be seen? I told you earlier, it's because God is invisible. First Timothy chapter one, if you want to turn over there. I, I briefly touched on this, but this way you'll have the scripture. First Timothy one and uh, verse 16. First Timothy one and 16. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ may show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Note what he says. God is invisible. You can't see him. First Timothy 6 gives us the passage that speaks of why we can't come into his presence. It says, verse 16, 1 Timothy 6, 16 says, and he's speaking of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, speaking of God, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, which no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So he makes it very clear. You cannot see the Lord. He's invisible. He has no form that you could look upon. He has no physical appearance that you could see. And so he makes that clear. Yet, in Scripture, you will see passages, just like the one we looked at in Judges, where they said, we saw God, we're going to die. You see one also in Exodus 24 where they say they saw God and they, act, and they ate with him. And you see their concern there. Look in Exodus 24, verse 9. It says, Then Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. So you got a group of people in this case. And they saw the God of Israel. And, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand. So they saw God and they ate and drank. They saw the presence of God is what they saw. The only thing they describe 
is where he was standing. Similar to, similar to Moses. You know, Moses said, uh, I saw God's glory when he passed. I saw his backside. You didn't see his backside. He doesn't have a backside. But, but from, from Moses' perspective, he saw him. But scripture is emphatic. No man has seen God. And so when you deal with a passage like this and you deal with one like in John 1.18, you've got to come to the conclusion, no man has seen God. What they saw here was a vision of God or an image of God or a likeness of God or saw where God was standing because all they're able to define is the sapphire stone. Look at Exodus 33, Exodus 33 and verse 11. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp. But his servants, Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. That speaking face to face simply is the terminology it's used for him being in the presence of God. OK, that he was in the presence of God when he spoke there. Uh, Isaiah chapter six, Isaiah chapter six is another one. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. This is the testimony of Isaiah. And he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What's the significance of that passage? The significance of that passage is Isaiah, I mean, Uzziah was a very prosperous king. He did the nation very well. I mean, he was such a good leader that the people in the nation were almost to the point of worshiping Uzziah. He was so great, and he was leading the country at a very difficult time. And as great as he was, when Isaiah walks into the temple, he said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the real king. That's what he's saying. He's, he's drawing a contrast there. He said, I saw who really was on the throne. Israel was so blessed during the reign of Uzziah that even today, the, the weapon they carry, the Uzi machine gun, is named after this king right here. That's where they get the name from, from Uzziah. And because it means strength and power is the idea. And Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and a train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And with one he cried to another and said, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. What did Isaiah see? Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. What you saw, Isaiah, was a vision of the Lord. You did not actually see the Lord. You cannot see the Lord. He has no physical presence to see. He dwells in a light that you can't approach, can't come near him. You see places where in the Bible also, as we've already seen, but in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that, that you can't see God. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, God makes that clear to Moses in 4.15. He says, take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you. And when did the Lord speak to him? He spoke to him face to face. But what does God remind him of? You didn't see any form. You were in my presence is what you were, but you didn't see any form. He makes that very clear to him. He says, you did not see any uh, form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Okay. So 
And then we got John 1.18 where it says, no man has ever seen God, so forth and so on uh, in those scriptures. When it says that Moses saw the backside of God, that Hebrew word there can also be translated afterglow. Okay, he saw the passing of God, the presence of God as he came by him, okay? Well, who has seen God? That's the issue. If no man has seen God, who has? Well, no man has seen him, period. But John tells us one that did see him, and it was the God-man. The God-man saw him. Look at verse 18 of John 1. John chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time. An emphatic statement. No one has. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So he, he talks about the only begotten Son. Now I've told you before, the word there for begotten means one and only. All right? That's what it means. Now a lot of people take that word and, and they'll go to the Old Testament where it gives you the genealogies, uh, the part of your Bible probably where you're about ready to quit reading your year through the Bible thing. You get on those begots, that's the thing everyone says. I was reading through the Bible, man, I got in those begot passages. Boy, I gave it up after that. Well, that's usually the case, man. But see, when we see the word begot there, he's talking about people that were born, all right? When he talks about Jesus being the only begotten, he means unique, one of a kind. Another way you could translate begotten in relationship to Christ is one and only or you could translate it unique, one of a kind. Now, how is G Jesus the only begotten? How is he the one and only? How is that the case? Well, it's the case because there's never been a man like Christ to live on the earth. He's unique in this sense. He's 100% God and undiminished deity. He is fully God, all right? There's no... If, ands, and buts about it. Verse 1 tells us, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who is the Word? Verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was incarnated. He took on a human body. So he's fully God, undiminished deity. At the same time, he is 100% man without sin. Okay? He was born of a virgin. So he's 100% man without sin. He's 100% God and undiminished deity and one person, the one and unique one, the son of God, the only begotten of the father, unique individual. Uh, the, there's a dictionary word for it. It's called hypostatic union. It's the joining together of two distinct and different natures in one person. You can look it up in Webster's Dictionary, have a definition of it. But it's fully God, fully man without sin, boom, in one person, the God-man. The only one that has ever lived. The only one that has ever existed. So that's what he means by only begotten. Then he says, the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father. What does that mean? The bosom of the father. It means he has closeness to God. He is in union with God. And that's very clear. Jesus Christ is what we refer to as the second member of the triunity of God. And that is that God is one in three persons. And people say, well, could you explain the Trinity to me? I can tell you this. I took a course in seminary called Trinitarianism. 
We spent an entire semester studying the Trinity, and no, I cannot explain it to you. And it's not that I don't recall my notes. I can go through all my notes with you. But folks, you're talking about God, and when you talk about God, you're talking about things that are outside our ability to understand and reason. How can there be three persons in one? How can God be one, and yet we call him Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? It is just another one of the mysteries of God. It's like trying to explain eternity. You can't explain it. You, any human definition, and I've seen every, we had two whole classes on what was called modalism. And modalism is where we say God was in this mode or this mode, that kind of stuff. And people use illustrations like an egg. You got the egg shell. You got the egg white. You got the egg yolk but you refer to it as an egg. And I mean, eventually you're gonna get in, you're gonna, get, you're gonna break apart. You can talk about a tree, you got the roots, the trunk, and the branches. Uh, I've heard he wanted to, and I say that for this reason, someone's gonna catch me outside and say, Pastor, have you ever heard of the illustration? I've, yes, I've heard of it. I've heard of all of them. And you can't explain it. You cannot explain the triunity of God. It is the mystery. It, you get to the point when you start reading that in that class, we'd take breaks just to pray uh, because you, you start really getting a glimpse of, of who God is. And it's so far beyond our ability to comprehend. It, it just it boggles the mind. But it says here that the son was in the bosom of the father. And what does this word bosom mean? Well, look with me, if you would, at Luke 16. Luke 16 And in Luke 16, look at verse 22. Luke 16. Now, this is the rich man and Lazarus, the story, a rich man. It says, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. So the, he was up close to Abraham. It would give you the appearance that he's actually leaning on Abraham. Abraham's bosom is also, from the standpoint of trying to define terms, is also referred to as a place. Abraham's bosom was the place of the believer, where the believers went. But that's an interpretation because it says very clearly he was in Abraham's bosom. He saw Abraham. He's talking about an individual is what he saw. Now, once again, that's something very difficult to define or explain. Uh, look at John 13. I think we get a better understanding in John 13. John 13 speaks of this. And John 13 Oh, let's begin in verse 21. John 13, 21. And when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, if you don't understand the writings of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved was a common way that John referred to himself. 
And so he's leaning on the bosom of Christ. What does that mean? Well, if you remember the picture of the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, very classic picture. It shows a table with all these people sitting around the table. Well, that is not how they ate back in that day and time, okay? Now, I know, I know the picture says they did, but I'm telling you, the cultural reference is that they didn't. What they would do is they'd normally have big cushions and they would lean over on the cushion. They would recline at a table. Most tables were about 18 inches off the ground. They would recline and then the next person could recline next to them and they would be around the table like that. John in this case is right next to Christ and he just leans up against him because he's right there by him. Uh, that also defines why they wanted to make sure their feet were washed when they came in there because while you're laying there, someone's nasty snags are right up there by you. And if they've been roaming around through the streets of Jerusalem, they've got donkey exhaust all over them. And uh, it's not a good thing. You want those feet clean when you're in a place like that. Plus, I wouldn't want it to be like that because most people's feet are just nasty looking. Uh, but nevertheless, that's what they're doing. They're laying there like that. And so he just leans back. On the, on the chest of Christ. What does that show you? It shows unity, it shows intimacy, it shows comfort, peace, that kind of stuff. When we see in John 1, where it says the only begotten son was in the bosom of the father, immediately it should conjure up the idea of they come, they, they were, they're together. Well, we've got that in scripture. Look back at uh, verse one of this prologue. It's kind of like what you have here is an inclusio. You get a statement up here and a statement here. You got a beginning statement and then a concluding statement. Everything in the middle adds to explain those two. It's like bookends is what an inclusio is. Look at the first part. It says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. That statement, the Word was with God, we studied the attributes of God and I showed you where Christ has the attributes or possesses all the attributes of God. They were one and the same. They were together. It doesn't mean he was with him, kind of like my Bible's with me this morning. It means he was in, he was in close relationship, fellowship with him. So he came from the bosom of the Father. He proceeded forth from God. Well, what did he do when he did that? Look at our text. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. He is the one that has declared him. Once again, he is emphatic, meaning he alone has declared him. He alone possesses the full understanding of God. He alone can tell you what God is like. All of man's explanations of God are speculation. You understand? What he's doing is he's revealing what he knows firsthand. He's explaining God to them. The word there for declared, there in your scripture where it says, he has declared him. I put the word up there on the screen for you. The, the word is exegemi, and it comes from, a, it's a compound word, ek meaning out of, and uh, hegemi means to tell, to lead out, to draw out, to bring out meaning. It's, it, it's the word, honestly, you could transliterate the word into exegete, 
And to exegete means to bring out the meaning, to clarify, to describe, to explicate, to illustrate, to make clear, to unfold, to reveal something. That's what it's saying there. It's not saying that Jesus declared him by just simply saying who he is. He declares God, or he explains God through his actions also. He reveals God through what he does. And many times you would hear Jesus say this. He'd say, they'd say, well, who do you think you are making that claim? Well, he said, well, if you don't believe what I say, then believe what I've done. Believe my works. Believe, believe in what I've revealed to you. Not just what I say. But he declared him both ways. He declared him verbally, but he also declared him through a walking, living example for the people to see. Why is that important? Well, you're going to see as we go through the Gospel of John that the people have a very different understanding of what God is like. Now, why did they get an understanding that was different? They got an understanding that was different because of people. Men, religious leaders, had taken and formed an image of God that fit more to their liking and understanding than it does to the Scripture, okay? And that happens a lot. You know, I've, I've sat there and explained stuff to people and speaking about Scripture, and I'll say, well, I just don't believe God would do something like that. Well, it says right here that that's exactly what God has done. See, we... We have images of God and understandings of God that come from subjective understanding. And subjective understanding is not good when it's coming from a sinful heart. We will always shape God to be something that we can manage. And that's, that's been the story of man since the beginning. I mean, go back and read the story of Moses He's up on this rock and he sees the glory of God pass and he goes down and these people have made a golden calf and they're worshiping a golden calf. I mean, how foolish is something like that? How dumb is something like that? Very clearly, it's very foolish. It's very dumb. Um, and so the religious leaders had God painted in a certain way. And when Jesus came, they said, this man can't be of God. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. We saw him just the other day drinking wine with people. He's a wine bibber. He's a drunk. They were accusing him of being a drunk. Because what did he do? He broke their man-made rules. And folks, I'm going to tell you, religion will destroy someone as far as God is concerned. Religion is why so many people have problems with God. Very few people I've talked to, when you talk to them about an accurate representation of the person of Christ, they really don't have an, an issue with that. What they have issues with usually is, is what churches do for religion or what people do in their own life and how people, very much like the Pharisees, are very condescending towards other people. People that don't look like them. People don't smell like them. People don't act like, don't have the same likes or desires, they'll draw a conclusion. They're not, they're not a part of this. I mean, have you ever gone into church and had people look down at you or look, I mean, treat you in an ugly way? Well, if you hadn't, I'm going to tell you what, it's going to come one day. You're going to experience that because that's what people are. 
Man in religion wants to see himself as better than other people. We all do. I mean, I deal with it all the time ministering to inmates. I have correctional staff who ask me, I don't see how you could do that with those people, man. Do you know what they've done? I said, well, yeah, I'm fully aware of what they've done. I fully comprehend that. But also know they're created in the image and likeness of God. And also know that God's gospel is for everyone. And I know also that God can change a person and he will change a person. And I've seen some of the most heinous people in the world changed miraculously by God. I mean, I've seen that with my own eyes because I look in the mirror. God can take a heinous person, an evil person, and turn them into someone that loves him. That's what the power of God is about. That's the power of the gospel. That's why Paul said, for the gospel is a power of God unto salvation for those who believe. For the Jew first and also for the Gentile. It's the power of God that changes a person, not religion, folks. Religion will do nothing for you other than lead you astray from God. It will give you a distorted image of God. And so what Jesus did when he came is he does a rightful presentation of God. He reveals God to the people and most of the people rejected it. Definitely the religious leaders did. You know why? He didn't fit their image or their understanding of it. So what did God do? He sent his son. He says, go down there and show them what we are like. And that's what Jesus does. He's a friend of the tax collector and the sinner. He goes to the downtrodden. He cares about people that have totally screwed up their life. The woman at the well, multiple marriages and living in adultery. No big deal. Believe on me. See, he's there to rescue the sinner and to transform the person. That's who he is. He comes to wretched, broken people. That's who he came to. But that doesn't fit the image of religion. But Jesus rightly declares who God is. He reveals who God is. He shows not just through his words, but through his action. This word that is used here, uh, that, that we've translated declare, exegemi, is more of a Hellenistic word, meaning it came more from Greek background than it does from biblical usage. All right? And what it meant in the Greek uh, background was to recount facts, to relate a narrative, to make known secrets based upon fact and not speculation. So when it says he exegetes God, he brings out who God is. I exegete scripture. I'm not allowed to use speculation. If I speculate on something, I make it a point to say, this is what I think or I believe. But the text, this is what the text reveals. Exegesis brings that meaning out. You don't spiritualize it. You don't allegorize it unless it specifically is. You explain what the text means. When Jesus came, he explained who God is. Now, what that is it's also referred to as special revelation. There are two primary types of revelation given. One is called general or natural revelation. General or natural revelation is given to every person that comes into the world. General or natural revelation is what's defined in Romans 1. And we've looked at it numerous times. 
God has revealed himself through the things that are made, the creation. And it says, so that his eternal power and Godhead may be known and that man is without excuse. So every person that comes in the world knows that there is a God. But then the scripture goes on to say, it says, but men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Why do people deny God? They deny God because when you understand that there is a supreme being, that there is a God, uh, it's going to affect your moral standing. There's a conscience within man and he knows I violated God. And so one of the easiest things to do is try to just push God out of your mind, to suppress the truth, to ignore the truth. But you look at the creation and the scripture says God reveals himself through the things that are made. You can look at the stars. You can look at the planets. You can look at just the simple beauty of creation. You look at the just something simplistic as a flower and look at the detail and look at the colors and the shapes and everything. And you'll see something that pops out. You'll see order. You'll, you'll see design. All these things reveal that there is a designer that, or that there is a creator. And if a person is open to look into it, they will see it. But what does man do? I don't believe that. I believe this, this, and this. And they believe that things are, are a result of randomness or chance. And yet you see that same design replicated over and over in just unbelievable detail. That's general or natural revelation. Person stands on the uh, edge of the Grand Canyon and looks out across it. They're struck with an awe of, of, wow, look at the beauty of this. The other night coming back from Mountain View, we're driving home and you can see the sun setting on the horizon and it was blazing red. I mean, it was, an, it was unbelievable how red that horizon was. One of the most beautiful sunsets that I've seen. You see, my wife and I, we're driving uh, to Brian yesterday and a ray of light coming through the cloud, just a shaft of light coming through, just the beauty of God and the beauty of his creation. That's general revelation. No one can be saved by general revelation. They have to have special revelation. Well, special revelation is where you get a deeper or, or more clear definition of God. For example, the word of God. The Bible is special revelation. The Bible reveals the details about God and tells you what is required of man, what, is, what does God expect, how can man have a relationship with God. That's special revelation. The Holy Spirit is special revelation. The, the Holy Spirit, he can reveal to you who God is through the scriptures. But Jesus is also special revelation. Jesus defines for us who God is. He shows us in himself and in his words, this is who God is. This is a clear picture of God. This is what God looks like. So if you want to know what God looks like, you look at the person of Christ because he is special revelation. He came forth from the bosom of the father and he exegetes God. He makes him clear. He explains him. He defines him. He takes that which was unknown and makes it known to man. Man left to himself will always come up with a deity he can manage in some way. Hence, you have a religious system. Talk about appeasing God through sacrifices, through good works, 
through human effort. All these things fly contrary to what God says. God says, there is no way for man to please me. He said, all of your righteousness is just filthy rags. I won't accept anything from you. Anything that proceeds forth from man is affected by sin. And so the only thing God accepts is God. And that's the person of Christ. So the only way you come in the presence of God is with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Your sins paid for, Christ's righteousness given to you. You're just as righteous as God positionally, so you can come right into the presence of God with his righteousness. And so if you've trusted in Christ when you die, you will go into the presence of God because of the righteousness of Christ. Not because you were a faithful person. No, you should be faithful. Not because you gave, you should give to the work of the Lord. Not because you serve, you should serve. But you're not going to get there for that reason. You're going to get there because of the righteousness of Christ and Christ alone. That is the only way to come into the presence of God is through him. And Jesus rightly reveals him. Remember I told you one of the motifs in the Gospel of John is that John is going to present Jesus as a greater than Moses. So you look up at verse 17. And it says, so the law was given through Moses, meaning Moses brought the law. What did the law do? Well, that's special revelation. Moses brought special revelation, but that special revelation reveals the character of God in his holiness and therefore condemns man. The law is good and the law is just and the law is right because it shows the holy character of God. But when man looks at that law, there's no hope for you and me in the law. There's no hope at all. All there is is condemnation. All there is is shame. All there is is I failed, I come up short. And Paul says that the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ. Paul also said that by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified before God. For by the deeds of the law is the knowledge of sin. And so the law tells us we come short. So Moses brought revelation, but that revelation brought condemnation. Jesus brings revelation and his revelation brings life. You see the difference? You see how he is greater? Jesus is greater than Moses in the revelation that he brings. Moses brings condemnation. Jesus brings hope and life. Or if you will, grace and truth. He brings grace and truth to man, and he shows us how man can have that relationship with God. That's the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see in the rest of John, we're going to see this carried out through the ministry of Christ. As Christ reveals God to mankind and shows mankind what God is truly like. Because see, Jesus is God. All he's got to do is walk among men, and we will behold his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in prayer, thanking you, Lord, for your, for your revelation to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without answers. You have not left us fumbling in the dark, but you've shown us clearly in your word and through the person of Christ as he's revealed in the word of what you are truly like and how we can have a relationship with you. Father, my prayer is if there's one here today that has never looked to you that they would today, that they would trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. And Father, for those of us that know you, that we would commit ourselves to live for you through the person of Christ. 
that we would commit ourselves to live it by faith, to walk by faith and be a witness to others. So, Father, we lift this up and we ask this of you. And it's in Christ's name we pray, Lord. Amen.